Hey there, Back Channel Radio listeners. This is producer Suzanne Hogan. Before we get started with the Gospel according to John, if you haven't already listened to Boathouse 101, stop right here and do that first, because this is part two of a six-part series, so you're going to want to listen in order. Episodes drop Fridays with bonus content sprinkled throughout the week. And just an FYI, this episode is marked as explicit only because there's some profanity in the first couple minutes, but after the three-minute mark, it's clean. If you want to help us out financially, you can support this podcast at backchannelradio.org. And thanks to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a place housing engaging exhibitions designed around various water themes like the flora and fauna of the mysterious and lucrative underwater world. Find out more about exhibits at MM. AM.org. Hey John, what's happening today? First, saved voice message. Yeah, I read your article in the Liberty Shopper here about cutting down the Republicans. I'm going to tell you something, you dumb son of a bitch. I'll tell you what, that goddamn country is so fucked up right now because of the goddamn inflation and the goddamn gas prices, and you dumb son of a bitch is sitting here and goddamn think the Democrats are so fucking great. I'm going to tell you something, you dumb son of a bitch. Why don't you stick your ideas up your fucking ass? To listen to the message, what's he saying? What did he he called, say? well, he called you a dumb son of a bitch three times. Yeah, I know that. I heard it. Okay, I understand that. But well, well, he's very upset with you. Yeah. I'm at my neighbor John Rupke's boathouse. It's summer 2021. It's hot. We're in the middle of the pandemic. John, who's 87, has been living here on the back channel of the Mississippi River in his floating home for over four decades. And for the past three years, I've been getting to know him and learning about the history of this place, how it almost disappeared, and hearing stories about his life. For as long as John's been on the island, he's been writing letters to the local Winona newspapers. On the outside, he doesn't stand out too much. An old man with glasses and fantastic posture, usually in a Minnesota Vikings cap. So at first glance, he doesn't come off as a practicing upstart whose preferred medium of choice is letter writing. He once told me that he used to feel more like a, quote, lone voice in the wilderness when it came to his opinions, but that in more recent years, it seems like the culture's caught up to his once radical notions, like equality. But in a country so divided, there's still the haters out there. I'm gonna tell you something, you dumb son of a bitch. Why don't you stick your ideas up your fucking ass? This is an angry message John received on his answering machine in response to one of his letters published in the paper. And then, and then what else did he say after that? He said, that's why our country is fucked up, and you should take your ideas and shove them up your ass. Yeah, okay, so I, I, he was upset. <laughs> why did you save that? I saved it because it was mildly threatening. And I didn't know if that was it, if, if he got this off his chest and now he was satisfied or if he might do something further so I wanted to keep a record of his voice and his phone number you notice this he never said I I disagree with what you said for this reason all he said was I didn't like what you said John's an intellectual he uses logic and reason to make a case for the issues he's passionate about and maintains the ability to understand why someone with an opposing viewpoint could become so irate over things like economy and inflation. And he doesn't seem to take the critique personally, on the surface at least. John first started writing letters to the paper back in 1979, when he was moved to respond to a derogatory letter penned by a local conservative. The man condemned the existence of gay people, 
saying homosexuals were tearing at the fabric of moral families. John's been writing letters ever since, a commitment he's maintained with unwavering fortitude. They're meticulously composed and thought out. His styles developed over the years, going from verbosely academic to more concise. But the themes usually reference current politics and injustice, and at their core, an unclouded idea can be clearly heard, that oppression in all its forms is wrong. For John, this message runs deep, as a person who was raised in the Catholic Church and taught to hate himself, who he really was. On this particular hot summer day in John's boathouse, it's about halfway through the first year of the Biden administration, a transition of power that was surreally marked by the insurrection at the Capitol. Sometimes, in these floating homes on Latch Island, it can feel like an oasis apart from the greater political macrocosm. This is how the letter John wrote to the Winona Post in October 2021 starts, the one that got that angry guy to call and leave the threatening voicemail. The human love all people experience is sacred. Many people now believe some of Winona's religious teachers are treating gay people immorally by trying to convince them when they are young that the love they experience is disordered. Can you read this last paragraph out loud? Starting from there, millions. Millions of Americans are now willing to sacrifice their God-given intelligence on Trump's altar because they have been programmed to really believe that truth is whatever they want it to be. This is today's infallible Republican doctrine. Truth will set you free. The delusion of truth will enslave you. This is Back Channel Radio, a Wolf Spider Island story. Podcast about the history of the Latch Island Boathouse community, stories from beyond the mainstream. I'm Gina Favano. Last episode, we learned a bit about what this place is like, some of the early history, and what it takes to live here. In the coming episodes, we'll learn more about the legal battles the islanders had to wage with bureaucracy in order to stay here, and about a few of the wide-ranging cast of characters who have made this place what it is, people who have fought in court and in unconventional ways to keep this place alive. One of the central figures in all of this, the unofficial community historian, is my neighbor John Rupke. John's life is remarkable even outside his accomplishments here on the Back Channel. This episode is Gospel According to John. John refers to his floating home as the temple. It's one of the few floating homes on the island that used to be a true boathouse meaning it housed a boat and was not originally designed as a living space. It's one room with a tiny loft above where he climbs a steep ladder each night to go to bed. There are photos and frames hung on the beams, several of pets long gone, and the layout suggests this person lives alone, but not unhappily so. Outside eagles are chirping and screeching. Is that the family of nine? No. Oh, yeah. And always, the ever-present drama of ducks. There's also a family of six that just came by earlier today. These are seven. Hmm? These are seven. Seven ducks. It's a different family. Yeah, oh, that's a different family. One, two, three, four, no, that's, that's five, six, yeah. seven. Yeah. Oh, wait, but no, they're leaning. No, what? No, they're eight, joining up. No, with they're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. The unconventional aspects of a lifestyle on the water in floating homes and being immersed in nature that's literally right outside your door is a big part of why people like John and myself would choose to live here. But the story of how John ended up here had more to do with his spiritual beliefs and determination to advocate for a better, more inclusive world, which he writes about frequently in the letters he sends to the local newspapers. The fact that I'm writing letters to the people of Winona enables me to think of myself as still teaching 
but teaching in a different way. John is the studious nature of one who spent years steeped in academia. He's a doctor of the psychology of human learning, has a degree in math, a double master's in English and religion. He's been a principal and a university dean. I asked John if he considered himself to be a radical. In a lot of ways, I guess I was a radical in advocating for gay, the gay agenda of um, equality and justice. The gay agenda that all the Christians were afraid of, uh, you know, let's stop the gay agenda, you know. John is the most senior of the remaining original boathouse occupants, the ones that founded the community in the 70s and 80s. Nowadays, most of the people from that generation have passed on or moved off the island out of necessity. But few boathousers of the current generation realize what an intrinsic role John played in helping to secure the rights of the community, or really anything about how this place came to be. John is well known for other reasons, for his letter-writing reputation in Winona and stance on gay liberation, but it wasn't always like that. John Rupke was born in 1935. He grew up in Chicago in a nice house with two loving parents and several brothers. They were religious. He went to a good school and has happy memories of early childhood. And John says he always knew he was gay. I can't erase the fact that when I was a little, when I was a child, I was being taught to reject myself by the, by the Catholic Church. Yes. And which, which I soaked up a hundred percent. I mean, you can you can move beyond it, but you can't erase what happened to you as a Catholic child, and for me as a Catholic gay child. And um, I, I honestly faced the fact that. I was damaged by the Catholic Church uh, when I was a child, and uh, I mean I was taught a lot of good stuff. Yeah. But I was damaged as a as a person, and um, you know um, that's life. <laughs> when John was in high school, there was no one else around him that was gay, that he knew of anyway. There was no one in the media that was represented as being gay. It was a taboo, even dangerous topic that wasn't talked or written about. I never made a decision not to come out of the closet. It was just, that's the way you lived. When you were um, a teenager in the 50s. I remember when I was a teenager one day, standing in front of the mirror and looking in the mirror and saying, well, I guess you're a homosexual. I was like singing it to myself. Um, and then it was like going from there, going on from there, you know, it was like, um, because not only was I a homosexual, but I was the only one in the world. This sentiment sums up perfectly how it can feel as a young person to know you're outside the realm of quote unquote normal society, an outsider, and the isolation that can come with that especially in the days before the internet, when there wasn't that window out into a vast world of information. And the 50s really was a different era. It was a time when the Lavender Scare was in full swing. The Lavender Scare was a program implemented by the US government in 1950. It was a so-called moral panic launched to out gay people, have them dismissed from their jobs and worse. It paralleled the anti-communist McCarthy hearings, which decreed that homosexuals were communist sympathizers and morally corrupt, thus posing a threat to the United States government. 
And of course, there were rumors that in the elevated washrooms, there were these homosexuals that hung out and did weird things, you know. And did that make you want to go to the washroom? No, or maybe you wanted to stay as far away as I could. And I remember this, I was like a sophomore in high school and a uh, really cute guy moved in two houses down from me. He was a freshman. He was really cute. Um, I was totally taken up with how he was, how he presented himself, what he looked like. Wow, I totally avoided him. I, I was afraid that if I went over and was friendly to him, there would be an indication that I was gay. Even in college, if there was somebody I was really attracted to, I would stay away from them because I thought that if I went and tried befriended this really attractive person, that would be some kind of hint that I might be gay. So that was one way that I stayed undercover was, um, oh man, avoiding people I was, well, avoiding guys I was attracted to. You know, if I came out of the closet when I was a teenager, like I said, I could end up being separated from my family and being put in a mental hospital or into some kind of reprogramming or, you know, conversion mm -hmm. therapy or whatever, you know, because I know that that has happened to people who were my, you know, or my age or even younger. John remembers the day he was approached by some young Christian brothers at his school. It wasn't uncommon for young gay people to join a religious order rather than face the aftermath of coming out during a time of such intense oppression and violence. He recalls the brothers recognized him as one of their own and suggested he might want to go to the Glencoe Seminary in Indiana where he could prepare to join the clergy. When I was a freshman in high school, the brothers spotted me right away. Come on and be a brother, join the brothers, you know different one when you get Glencoe was where they went to become brother go to Glen when you go into Glen hey you're gonna go to Glencoe how about that and it was like man so here I am a freshman in high school and I said to my finally said to my parents I said I want to go to Glencoe and be a brother these uh because these brothers were young, they were uh, you know, they were in their twenties, you know, a lot of young brothers. Uh, so here I'm fourteen, not that much. Yeah. You know, and so it made it seem like cool or they, oh, they were cute. They were they were friendly. I just went on through high school, and then uh, when I graduated from high school, it was uh, <laughs> go to Korea and kill people, or go to college and get into deferment. It was like, well, that was no brainer. Um, <laughs> Around the time John graduated from college, the U.S. was still entangled with the Korean War. And up to this point, he had been studying math but hadn't put much thought into a career. He thought of the seminary and how joining the brothers could be the answer to his problem. I'm a senior in college. Uh, I said uh, to myself, what am, you know, at the same time, what am I going to do after college? You know, I don't know how mathematicians make money. I wasn't yeah. <laughs> preparing for a job. So that's when I said, well, the perfect answer is go join my bu buddy at Glencoe because this is an organization of all men, really cool men. 
Uh, I won't have to try to figure out answers why I'm not dating women anymore. I won't have to, um, or I have to pretend. I won't have to pretend that I was attracted to women. So it was like, what better answer would there be? Yeah. For me, I was like, wow. You know, it's like, it was the perfect solution. So. There have been many scholars over the years who have suggested that preventing priests from marrying altered the makeup of the priesthood over time, unintentionally providing a shelter for some devout gay men to hide their sexual orientation. The actual number would be hard to quantify, not surprisingly because of reporting discrepancies. But this isn't news to the church. During the time of extreme oppression that John is referencing, expansive new buildings actually had to be built in a short amount of time to accommodate the boom of new initiates. I don't know if I said it out loud to somebody, but it was like, wow, there's a lot of people in here with the, who are the exact people that I ignore, got to, would stay away from. In fact, there were a couple who, there were some who were referring to each other by feminine pronouns. Really? Really, really. And, couple, this, and two, this is two, in like the 50s and 60s? Th yes. This, but they were, again, now they're in this, enclosed environment so um and and if they met their own kind in there you know these were people who weren't hiding their gender uh like i was uh, or their whatever you want they weren't they were more out in the open yeah, so they, they were meeting yeah it was their like sexuality yeah right and um the whole set of rules in an avishay was designed for to keep you from falling in love with the guys that you were with. You cannot have particular friendships. And can you explain a little bit more what, what those are about? Because that was fascinating to me, the particular A particular friendship. friendship okay, and that's, that was why the rules of modesty were enforced to keep you from getting a, a particular friend, because a particular friendship was the big no-no. The rules of modesty included not being allowed to look into each other's eyes or to touch one another. Having a particular friend was also discouraged. And a particular friend would be somebody who, they didn't say that you were both gay and you were both falling in love with each other. No, that's not what the way they put it. The way they put it was something like, well, this is somebody who um, you're, the two of you are closely attached, and it inhibits your ability to be in love with everybody. The whole everybody in the and and you know you were supposed to be in love with everybody. The mystery, not, not particular. But that was a good word because it wasn't sexual. It was just um, you're too closely connected. You're to this person in particular. You can't have a connection that was particular. John served as a brother for 24 years, quietly enduring his ongoing repression until the national cultural shift that took place in the 1960s and 70s. There was a growing gay movement in the U.S., and it slowly emboldened him to make the needed change in his own life. He recounted to me a memory from when he was still living in the friary with his fellow brothers, all of them gathered around one room watching television. The breaking news that night was Stonewall. The Stonewall Re Rebellion in, in uh, June of 69 yeah. was huge in my mind. Yes. You know. The Stonewall Uprising that John's talking about happened on June 28, 1969 in New York City. 
It's widely considered a watershed moment in history that catapulted the gay liberation movement. Pride events were celebrated in June to commemorate it. It was like coming out of the closet and leaving the brothers who were like two parts, like two sides of the same coin. John was thinking more and more about coming out, about leaving the brotherhood and starting his life over with nothing. The, the saying inside the brothers is if you're here till 40, you gotta stay because, you know, and what happens is you live the life of poverty in the brothers, but you live the life of luxury. You've got, oh, you know, worry about a job. You've got gardeners, cooks, everything is taken care of. You know, you don't have to worry about cars. You don't have to worry about anything. But if you leave the brothers, then when you experience poverty, that's how it's worked. So that's how they keep you in. I know when I was a principal of a high school, one of the older brothers uh, who I knew, had known I had taught with him in the west side of Chicago, and he said to me, if I were younger, I'd leave the brothers, but I'm too old to leave now. And it was like, wow, that hit me really hard. It's like, if you wait and wait and wait beyond a certain point, you're trapped in a sense. That's what he was saying. He was trapped. In 1979, John, at age 43, decided to visit San Francisco, a city known for being a stronghold for the gay rights movement. It was a trip that changed everything. I went to Haight-Ashbury, and right on the corner of Haight-Ashbury is a gay bar. Were you by yourself? Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to explore it. <laughs> And I was the only one, I, who else would I take to explore the gay neighborhood with me, you know. So I, I had never been in a gay bar. So I walked in, here's all these people dancing, and um, music is, is, you know, and they had this, it was like disco the beat, you know. And I, so I went and I sat over pretty close to, to the microphones that were blaring out the beat, and I sat there and it was like, that's when I came out. That was my coming out moment. And it was all done by, right there at that point. And, were, uh, were you still wearing like the, the No, no, I was, I was in a civilian outfit. Yeah. And uh, so it was like, I, so the, for me, the first part of coming out, it was coming out to myself and mm. making a decision mm. that this is the direction that I have to go. The next year, John took a standard leave of absence from the Brotherhood and soon after that, he officially left and bought a boathouse on Latch Island. So you're technically, you're not, you don't leave the brothers until you get it in writing in Latin. When I got the notice in Latin, <laughs> it wasn't official until it was in Latin. God only understood Latin in those days. <laughs> When you leave a religious order as an older person, you're faced with a lot of specialized challenges. There's no 401k, no stipend. You've been trained in very specific areas, like theology. John was a highly qualified teacher, overly qualified even. But after the scandal of him coming out while he was a graduate dean at a university, he was blacklisted from any decent teaching positions at the local schools. With very little money and no prospects to speak of, he set about finding a new way of life for himself. So somebody had an advertisement for a boathouse for sale, four hundred dollars, and uh, they said, "Well, we got this one here. This is the winner. You can have that for four hundred. We're not sure if it'll float. I think it's on the ground now. The river was low." And I said, "Okay, well, I'll take my chances." I bought it. it was like, "Wow, this is way, way cool. This little little boathouse." 
It was here on the back channel, in this barely floating, one-room home, where John began to build a new community, albeit a small one at that point. John Rupke was finally able to explore who he truly was. I was pretty much a radical when I came out. I, I had, I, I had a, a, a jacket. I might, I probably have a picture of it somewhere. And on the back it says, Johnny Starr, lover of the earth. That's who I became. That was a pseudonym? Yeah, I became Johnny Starr, lover of the earth. How did you, did someone give you that nickname? or did you No, I gave yourself? myself that name. Uh, and I had a, tri I had a uh, pink triangle on that jacket, which was the which is the symbol of the the gay people who were re required to wear pink triangles by the Nazis, and um, yeah, and I walked around. I mean, that's who I was. When I was Johnny Starr, lover of the earth, living in a boathouse, um, or yeah, advocating for. A gay uh, <laughs> justice and equality. Aside from being remarkably spry for someone of his age, John's appearance doesn't really stand out. So it caught me off guard when he pulled out an old photo of himself. Well, here, um, this is in my boathouse. This is my jacket, Johnny Starr. <laughs> oh my God, that's bitching. Yeah. Whoa. Then he takes out an album containing photos from the pivotal era in his life when he first joined the burgeoning counterculture on the island who had no problem accepting his being gay. These were just cut off, and there's there's me with the Johnny wow. Star. And, and, you know, standing in the boat. And uh, how about this photo? That's awesome. That's awesome. That's me. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you ended up in the counterculture mostly because you were gay, or do you think you would have kind of ended up here anyway? Well, that's a good question. I think I certainly wasn't in the counterculture when I was a brother. Okay, so that's 44 years and uh, living in monasteries and teaching in conservative Catholic schools. But um, when I left and came into the boathouse, it was... My being gay was not a problem in the counterculture, which was, wow, that's, that was a huge thing. In the counterculture, John was able to redefine his life on his own terms. He was able to start over as his true self. He was able to date men. Was Norm your, that was your partner? Yeah, Norm? yeah, that's Norm, yeah. He lived in, he, he was in Leslie's boathouse before Leslie. Leslie was John's neighbor on the island for many years. We'll learn more about her later. John tells the story of the night he first met Norm. John had been working at a group home for at-risk kids in town, and his co-workers had thrown a Halloween party at one of the local bars. So we had a Halloween party there. I was dressed as the devil. <laughs> and so we were all hanging out there, you know, and I'm sitting at a table, and this guy walks in without any costume and kind of looks around. And he was dressed as the uninvited guest. That's what we always <laughs> So he comes in, so I, I walked over to him and I said, well, I want a beer. So that's how I met him. And he had, we ended up at this house and talked all night, you know. Norm would become the love of John's life. We were both born gay. We were both raised Catholic. You know, I became a teacher of homophobia when I became a brother. He was a mining engineer, so he worked for 
he ran uranium mines in New Mexico and came to, for, for Kerr McGee, the ones who killed, murdered Karen Silkwood. Karen Silkwood was a labor activist who led an expose of and went on to sue the Karamagi uranium mine over charges of radiation contamination of herself and her co-workers. She died under mysterious conditions. There's a 1983 movie made about her starring Meryl Streep. But then as he started to get realize reality, he quit that, he, he quit that, and, uh, and I quit the brothers. So in some ways, our paths were um, similar. And when he came, when he met you know met me, uh, and we came down to the boathouse, his reaction was, "Wow, this looks like a I'm looking for a new way to live, and this looks like a really nice new way to live." You know, living in a floating home or boathouse in the middle of the Mississippi River. So it was like he was in a situation where. Uh, I introduced him to a new way of living, and which he really was ready for. It was here on the island, alongside other outsiders searching for their place in the world, that John was able to explore his new identity in an environment of acceptance. Living so closely with nature in a boathouse aligned with his spiritual beliefs that were developing outside the religious order. As I mentioned earlier, John has a degree in religious education, among other things. He's able to expound on the subject in great detail and at length. He mentions how Constantine and his army took Rome and how they rejected the teachings of Jesus. Once Constantine was declared emperor, the Council of Nicaea was convened, establishing Romanized Christianity. Jesus was the most radical pacifist who ever lived, I suppose. I was curious about whether a person like John, who knows every inch of the Bible, has since rejected it all completely, or had he found something of worth that he wants to hang on to? What I am, okay, what, where is my belief? What, my belief is, I, 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 um, all in the teachings of Jesus, especially in the two writings written by the young man he loved, the Gospel of John and the, and the Epistles of John. That's my spirituality. I think that's what better idea can you get from what Jesus was all about than if you read um, the writings of the young man he loved. and. Uh, Again, he was never he never identified himself as John. That was made up. He only, he five times in his gospel he identified himself as the disciple Jesus loved. I am the disciple Jesus loved. Um, and uh, so I think, whoa, well, that, that's that's pretty cool. That's uh, that's the guy I want whose whose word I would like to understand. So that's my. Spirituality is the writings of the young man Jesus loved about Jesus and his teachings. And I don't need anything that the popes are saying or the Constantine said or all the credos and uh, well, I don't need any of that. All I need to is the Gospel of John and his epistles. At the time of this recording, John was still earning his living touring with the Midwest Renaissance Festival, which was a great way for some of the islanders to make money, seasonally and under circumstances that fit their unconventional lifestyle. We'll hear more about that later. In 1985, while John was working at the Ren Fair down in Texas, he got some troubling news. John's partner, Norm, was HIV positive. Of course, that... <laughs> 
you can believe that that was a real blow, not only because Norm was HIV positive, but was like, oh, well, where does that leave me? So I, I went and got tested in uh, La Crosse because in those days it was not easy to get tested. Yeah. And I came out negative. AIDS in America in 1985, at the height of the epidemic and the accompanying stigma, there were so many unknowns. It would be another year before Ronald Reagan would even mention AIDS in public on television. It was a scary time. Because not much that not that much was known about HIV, you know, and AIDS. Uh, I remember he was reluctant to pee in the river. Is that going to contaminate? You know, remember him thinking about that. I never met Norm, but I got the impression from talking to those that knew him that he was charming and sweet. He was handsome. He helped found the Celestial Circus with John, which was a pop-up planetarium that traveled with the Renaissance Fair to teach kids about astronomy. Within a few years of his diagnosis, his health had dramatically changed. He had AIDS. You know, in a couple years... He went through all the stages of old age, including losing his sight. It was, it was really sad to be with him uh, while he was in the process of actually dying, which carried on for a couple of years. Um, uh, that, was, that was difficult. Norm had to eventually move out of his boathouse and into an apartment in town where he had help from friends and family who would stop over. It was a long, painful process. As time went on, things got worse and worse, and so it was like when he died, it was like, it was a relief for me uh, that he was no longer in a process of continuing downhill suffering. Yeah. By the time he died, he was like a old blind man. Um, How old was he? 39. Thousands of people died during that time, many of them young and previously healthy, their deaths due in no small part to the Reagan administration that remained largely silent and unresponsive until it was too late to help so many. It was not a fun time. It was difficult. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah, but I didn't drag that with me. That's what I also wanted to say, that I didn't dwell on, oh, gee, it would be different. It would have been, it would be very different. I would have a diff very different life if Norm was still here. Yeah. But I, I went with what, what evolves after that happened. It would have been different for John. Maybe he would have had a partner to grow old with. John's been living on the river now for more than 40 years, and at the time of writing this, is still completely independent. Living here is incredibly labor-intensive. You have to haul in all your water and fuel. You can't just drive up to your place. It's a regular occurrence for me to look out the window and see him walking the trail. He has a distinct gait. It's not easy living by any means, but he doesn't want to live anywhere else. For some reason, water always drew me. When I was still a brother, I had a connection with a priest who 
had a very strong connection with uh, Hindu religion. And so he kind of integrated Hinduism with the um, with Christianity, and he talked to me about this a lot. In fact, I still have a copy of the Hindu holy book, the Upanishads. And, uh, and for them, there were three manifestations of God. One was the river, the Ganges River. And so that spirituality where the river is a, is a manifest, manifestation of God was also part of my um, thinking, believing before I came here. So it's, it's the, for the Hindus, the holy river, is, the Ganges is the holy river. You know, and I think the thing that's strange is some people want to go to the Himalayas, the holy mountains, the Ganges, the holy river, because they have been Hindu thinking, but it was, that's not, if you want to have, get some Hindu thinking, you don't go to another continent to find the holy river or to find the holy mountain. That's crazy. That's not what the Hindus, the Hindus didn't say the holy river is some river over in Africa. It's the river right here that we're living next to. They didn't say it's the mountain over in North America, it's the mountain right here. You know, so if you want to get involved in the spirituality of the Hindus, <laughs> you don't go to the Ganges, you don't go to Himalayas, you go to the mountain that's near you, or the bluff that's near you, or the river that's near you. So it was like, for me, it was integrated into my spirituality. A lot of us spend years traveling and searching, trying to find the places and experiences that give your life meaning, that help shape and define you along the way. As I get older, I notice that I carry these experiences within me. I can see something ordinary growing out of the sidewalk and be just as moved as I was long ago seeing something new and unfamiliar on the other side of the globe. It gets easier to find the mystical and the mundane. After more than four decades of living on the island, John has settled into a routine. Each season is distinct. Some months you can walk the path, some months you can only wade or boat in because of the flood, and all this is meticulously noted in the logs on his bookshelves. In the deep winter months, you can walk out on the ice road that forms when the back channel freezes over. Even with all these variations, there's a rhythm, cycles that repeat. John hauls in his food, water, and fuel. He writes letters to the paper. And until very recently, his main source of income came from working at the Renaissance Festival. These days are a lot different from the early days of the Boathouse community. Before he became the unofficial island historian, John was part of the core group of Boathousers who were organizing the petition for their right to remain on the island. We'll learn more about that whole complication next time. It became an issue with the city council, and so we had to build a case that, well, we had a right to live here. It's a lifestyle here. A certain amount of freedom, you know, uh, on a bicycle. Certain amount of freedom in the river. Certain amount of freedom in the judiciary system if you allow yourself freedom. Back Channel Radio is researched and written by me, Gina Favano, and edited and mixed by producer Suzanne Hogan. Grace Ambrose designed our website, backchannelradio.org, where you can find photos and bonus material. It's also where you can donate to the project. Every bit helps. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions and the Wax Lyricist. Huge thanks, always and forever, to the original Wolf Spider Islanders and everyone who loves this place. Special thanks to the Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council, the John Latch Board, the Awesome Foundation, and individual donors on Patreon. 
thanks also to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a place committed to ecological stewardship and justice. The museum's six-acre campus was once a large sand pile on the bank of the Mississippi River and Winona's busy commercial port. Now it's home to a six-gallery museum and education center, and it's delicately restoring a five-acre prairie garden. Learn more about exhibits and events at mmam.org. Until next time, stay afloat.